Welcome to uh, another episode of Escape from Plan A. Uh, got a few people on this one. Uh, uh, Jong, who's a, you know like a regular co-host. Jong, what's going on, man? Hey, what's up? John, it makes sense that Jong's on this one because he's a, like a resident, you know, martial arts and combat enthusiast. Right? You're like enthusiast. the most well versed in that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess probably so. fits the 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 topic for today. Um, and my girlfriend Shan is here. Hello. Um, she joined us for uh, a pod last week for the first time talking about uh, some of the vi- anti-Asian violence going on in New York City, which I think forms the basis of this pod. Um, so we're joined by uh, Henry and Katrina. How's it going? Henry Zhang, right? Yes, yes. Hen- Henry Zhang, Henzi. Some people refer to me as Dr. Z. I, my, I have an old, a code name called Darth Brazzer. That is a long story. You can call me Henry. Oh my Henry. God. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> But yes. Uh, you want me to introduce myself? Like you know. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Please, and Katrina as well. Yeah. So I am the I. There. I. As you know, there are many Asian Americans who have basically exited sort of the discourse and said, "Fuck it, we're going to take safety into our own hands." Right. We don't need to convince other people that we're human beings. And I came to that conclusion back in April fifth, twenty twenty, uh, where I started. Um, I was watching Asian Americans get the crap beat at them. This is about a year into the pandemic, right? No, yeah. April 2020. Oh, so we're like a month into it. A month into it. Yeah. I already seen it. I've mm. already saw the, sta- the stabbing at Sam's Club. I had already seen how we were attacked by people of different races. I had already seen, you know, the right wing rhetoric. I had already seen the gaslighting by my own people, right? And I also you know, grew, I spent 10 years of my life. Uh, at an MMA gym. Well, you know, a very diverse one where, you know, I had a lot of folks, black brothers, who were like family. And I was like, there's no way we can talk out of this. We have to fight our way out of this. So I started my own like, remote, because it was COVID, right? So we started my own M- remote MMA training group. Uh, back then it was called Dark Brothers Death Squad. Now it's called, and it became known as Dragon Combat Club, which <laughs> is the first, so I, this essentially <laughs> makes me the first volunteer to have prepared uh, New Yorkers AAPI in response to COVID era racism um, in how to defend themselves, and we we still continue uh, to do that today. So, and one of the people who joined me in this insane journey is my tr- my trainee Katrina, who has also helped helped that as well. Hi, so hey, my Katrina. name is Hi, so my name is Katrina. I am by I am a healthcare professional in New York City by day. Um, <clears throat> But, you know, in my spare time, in addition to my other responsibilities, I help, I train with and help out Henry with Dragon Combat Club. Um, Of course, like many Asian Americans, I could see the start or the churnings of anti-Asian sentiment just bubbling up under the surface because of certain statements and also because of covid and, you know, I have to go in every day as a healthcare professional into my work using the subway. So I, I started training. So if you fast forward to when I joined, which was back in August or September of 2020. August. I, <laughs> August, yes. August, I joined. Um, I 
joined Dragon Combat Club and I started training, um, not only to keep myself fit, but also to give me a sort of sense of control about how I was feeling about having to go back into work three months at, into the pandemic, having to deal with the potential dangers of being in the subway and having to see all these headlines about attacks, verbal and physical, on um, AAPI. Mm-hmm. So I first I was a little muted. I wanted to keep myself very... I wanted to keep myself quite away from the spotlight but you know as these attacks keep on happening you know i just wanted to kind of help uh, further dcc's voice and katrina did you have training did you have any training before you started with dcc oh no i the only training i had was being part of a karate club in high school for at least one semester oh okay so That's something. not that is something but most of my training was going to the gym, riding my bike, um, jogging, you know, maybe taking a dance class here or there, but any formal martial arts training? No. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> so, this is, uh, at, uh-huh. so yeah, this is the first time I've legitimately gone week in, with, uh, week, in week out, you know, um, with Henry and crew. And do you feel... Uh, better prepared now? How long did it take you until you felt pretty confident in your ability to defend yourself? That's that's a good question. Um, at first, especially in the first six months, I felt a little unsure. Granted, mm-hmm. I was training, we were training remotely. So whatever of the new, whatever nuances of movements that I was probably missing, it was kind of hard to go kind of hard to adapt just by right. looking at a computer screen um but slowly and surely i felt a little bit more confident i'm like around that point to feel like maybe i could potentially avoid dying in a situation um or potentially being seriously injured mm-hmm. um so so yeah, I mean, it just takes, it's taking me constant practice, constant, you know, review to feel more and more confident, you know, each mm-hmm. time I log on and also, you know, see Henry and crew in person too. Yeah. Do you- yeah, I think like, uh, I think because Shannon and I like joined on the, like the virtual training that Henry had on Wednesday. I did. Yeah, I remember you. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and I got to say like. You know, it was really helpful, I think, for us to not not so much just like learning how to defend yourself or whatever, but also mm-hmm. like the feeling that people are actually responding to this and that you're trying to like take control um, of the situation to whatever extent, whether it's just to say, look, I'm going to start, you know, training myself mentally and physically to prepare for, you know, to defend myself because, you know, I, from my end, like I've been doing, um, I've been talking to a lot of people about what's going on. I've been tracking like the quote discourse around it and finding myself incredibly frustrated, uh, and angry beyond belief that, you know, you all are talking about, uh, you know, middle of 2020, you know, April, 2020, when you started noticing this This is when I started noticing this Mm -hmm. and, 
it's been two years and we're still listening to people every time this happens. Asian American people in New York, you know, wondering openly, like, I wonder if race was involved in this, you know, and it's like, I think we're so past beyond that point. And I honestly don't care whether any particular one incident has enough evidence to bring hate crimes. I don't care about that. I know that, um, you know, like Shan, as uh, an Asian woman in New York taking the subways, you're you're she's going to be um, potentially targeted, period. So I think it was just really good because I think that was the first time you and I had like done something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I know like <laughs> in 2020, we're like we, you know, uh, I we, you started carrying like um, a rolling pin with you and then carrying mace and stuff. Um, and just kind of personally, like you and I had talked about what to do, but to be a part of like an organized class with similarly minded people, I think is a very welcoming break from the paralysis and self doubt that I think has like plagued a lot of Asian people in New York. You know what I mean? So uh, Chong, uh, Bretion, who was on the pod with us last time when we talked about the, the murder of Christina Unalee, uh, I think was also has joined DCC before. I know I saw her on the news with you guys out in Chinatown training oh, yes. and um, stuff. Awesome. And she was yes, it was a pleasure working with her. Um, that was actually the second. Um, I have long invited Chang to take our remote classes. She we haven't seen her in remote classes. We understand that uh, she is busy. The first time I met Chang was actually during the vigil of Yao Pan Ma. Um, we already unfortunately had been traumatized and had witnessed sort of. The inaction and the ineptitude in the response to Michelle Gold's murder. And what did we see? Right? More talks of the same thing, the same catchphrases. Now, as a caveat, I am actually a, a doctorate. I am not, I'm not a doctorate. I, I lied. I will get my doctorate in school psychology, right? I was already a school psychologist for two years. I am also, which means that I'm in a psych doctor program where I my schoolmates also include clinical psych students. And I've asked them like these politicians are talking about we need more mental help we require this and and i've asked them like does this make sense and they're like if i don't know what they're talking about i don't think they know what they're talking about so there's this emptiness right of like we know nothing will happen and we figured that when we went to yao pan mas vigil that there will be nothing substantial that will be said so we decided to bring our defensive gear, force multiplier tools, uh, into the fray. Tactical, our, our tactical flashlights were still, um, we were, they were running out at the time. So we brought pep, a bunch of pepper sprays and a bunch of uh, tactical pens to the vigil. And Chong was one of the people that we strapped up uh, that day. And that's how we met. <laughs> yeah, I mean, potentially, like of all the proposed, quote, solutions um that i hear people talking about um in terms of do we want more policing do we want more mental health services more access to housing etc um i mean none of those things in my opinion are short-term solutions that you know operate on the time scale of the three weeks that separated michelle go from christina unali yes right um and so the one thing that i think is effective is you know the kinds of things that that you guys uh, and girls are talking about, which is, you know, situational awareness, which is um, 
carrying force multiplier, mm-hmm. you know, weapons mm-hmm. on yourself and, you know, basic uh, combat skills. Yes. And that, that yeah. could have uh, helped her. Of all the things that I have heard as proposed solutions, that's like the one thing that might actually have helped her. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think you know, the term so, is might, right? Mm-hmm. Might. As opposed to not at all, or like right. in some fantasy world that it may have been plossible, right? In the far future, right? It's yeah. just something that might possibly. Yeah, and I, right. you know, and uh, I don't, I, I really don't love talking about the that um, event because it was so grisly. But Ugh. she did fight back. I mean, the guy had stab wounds, so yeah, good you know, for her. Yeah, and so good for mm-hmm. her. I mean, and, but if you know, if maybe if there had been. Uh, you know, maybe if she had been better trained or or something like that. I mean, God, who knows? But you know, at least that was the one thing that um, that she had to fight back with. Yeah. You know, was uh, her own body, right? So yes, and unfortunately, you know, we saw that when she was <clears throat> followed in, that she was unaware, right? And that could have been the difference between her closing the door on the attacker, which we have seen before, all right, or her drawing, uh, having to grab a weapon first. Um, Possibly, like I said, um, ABC7, when they interviewed me last week, asked me the question, like, could Christina Unally have survived if she was prepared? And I, of course, always want the fault to say, and this is true, that, you know, her murder is to nobody's fault, but the attacker and literally all the people who normalize it and enable it, right? And that being said, we have had people survive very, you know, similar situations um, in different ways. I think every little thing um, does, you know, could possibly, you know, add up. And yeah, it it is very grisly. I think not just because of the proximity, but because Katrina and I had passed by her place to celebrate Lunar New Year, the afternoon before she was killed. We had also helped out we had also uh, helped out different groups, uh, like they can't burn us off, in assisting the elderly go up and down the stairs, strapping them up with gear at the station at the block where she lived. So this hits ridiculously close to home. So, Henry, you, um, you know, you've clearly spent a lot of time thinking about this, thinking about what solutions might work, and you've, you know, you came to the conclusion: okay, what can make a difference today? or immediately is by teaching people to protect themselves. Um, how did you put together your training methodology and the, the different tactics and techniques that you're teaching people? We have a very interesting history in terms of how I came to that solution. I think the first was like this was sort of the discourse that we had been frustrated, sort of the absence of this absence of useful discourse combined with the fact that my fiance was one of the first people who had experienced overt racism due to COVID nineteen? Uh, that that was that was what set that was what caused me to act. At the time, right during April twenty twenty, um, I looked at different options. Right, I had been trained in combat sports, jujitsu, wrestling, and and also Muay Thai. And I figured, and I looked at the self defense programs out there, and I'm like, they were too complicated. They were too, um, or they were based off of things that were not live training, right? Not based off of an attacker that was going to aggressively come after you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so then I'm important. like, all right, let me just, 
obviously, do you need to have like a purple belt in jujitsu to serve? Well, first of all, you can't because it's remote, right? You're not getting any grappling skills whatsoever. Right. Uh, so yeah. We, focus, yeah, we focused on, yeah, on very basic heavy <clears throat> striking, right? Basically trying to teach people how to hit really fucking hard. And we're, you know, that was, so I took whatever I could and, you know, I just, I just focus on that, just building off those basic strikes, those very heavy striking combos. So I was like, that's better than nothing. That's better than like, you know, the shit that, you know, the, what the dust guy from Detroit, right? That, that one, that, that's, that's going to keep you alive more than that, right? <laughs> that's better than Aikido and all the, all the fancy stuff. So I was right. like, let's start there. Later on, however, I realized why I'm like, the people who are being attacked are women. And I looked at my club, right? And except for Katrina and like, I think like one or two other women, there, it was all yeah. like big Rolic dudes who or overweight dudes who happen to have trained MMA for a while. I'm like, right. huh, yeah, I'm really not reaching out to the people. Only. So I was like, what was wrong wasn't the techniques, right? It was the way I presented the techniques. Because mm-hmm. we know why you have to go through this rigorous combat sports training methodology, right? Why does my hand need to be up? Why does my chin need to be down? Why do? Why is it that when I throw my knee strikes, I need to use my hip, right? We understand why to put in the work. But the regular person who just wants to live doesn't make that connection. So we changed the way that we taught, uh, taught something, like presented the techniques, right? We said... Listen, there is a three-phase protocol in self-defense. Oh, I like to conceptualize violence. No, self-defense in many ways, right? From non-violent, the first phase, we want to avoid the situation if possible, right? Like, for example, if someone has a knife, <clears throat> ideally, you run away. Ideally, you make them run away. Ideally, you never have to deal with that. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we go to less than lethal. Let's just assume that your life isn't in danger, but you need to hurt the person so you don't need to be hospitalized. Where do we find the most effective means for that? Mm-hmm. We see that in MMA. We see that in UFC. Does it simulate a street fight completely? No, but it's like a lab, you know, <clears throat> that kind of has many concepts that generalize uh, to the outside world. Right. However, in the outside world, there are life and death situations. That will require you to use techniques that you cannot use on a training partner, right, or any sports setting. Mm-hmm. Eye gouges, the ability to pull out your pull out any stabbing device to stab them, stomping a person in the head against concrete, dropping your knees on someone's neck on concrete, right? You cannot do those things in MMA, but they are right. very effective. But why? But we can't just skip to phase three, right? You have to have developed the coordination, right, the power. The speed, the reflexes from sport, combat sports methodology to be able to be effective in not just being able to avoid the fight, but to do these dirty tactics as well. If I can't extend my arm and create distance with the long guard, I'm not going to be able to gouge out their eyes, right? <laughs> and so that's, there's, that's the connection that I've made. But now, because of the way we present the information, everyone understands that concept. Everyone is motivated to put themselves through that training. And after that, I noticed that more women joined and more women stayed and mm-hmm. more women were willing to put themselves uh, through that training and not That's to say, great. oh, I didn't expect that. Right. Yeah, I was the only guy on the Zoom last night and it was all, yes. 
I mean, other than Henry and then everyone, was <laughs> around, which was, which was nice to see. And, you know, uh, and, and, um, curious about, um, this question, I mean, Henry, Katrina, both of you, I, I'm curious what you think, but like, um, you know, when we first started thinking about how to defend, um, ourselves and, and, um, and when I, I thought, okay, maybe, you know, I don't know anything about martial arts. I took Taekwondo as a kid, uh, for many years, but that was about it. And, uh, and I haven't, you know, I haven't touched that since I was like, you know, in high school. And, um, so, you know, we, we, we got her like a really, this heavy duty sort of stick, like a hardwood stick. And then I put on like a backpack filled with towels. And then I was just like, just hit, just go at me. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, I was like, you know, lunge at me, stab me in the, and I just wanted to see what it would be like, because there's a significant size difference. Like I'm a lot bigger than, than Chan. And, uh, I gotta say, um, kind of scary. I mean, I think like with just with like even a stick, I was like, if I didn't know, if I was trying to go after her and she started lunging at me with this stick, like right in the belly, like that would really hurt. <laughs> like it, what I'm, what I guess what I'm trying to say is like I think a, a smaller woman actually does have like a really good fighting chance against a larger man, uh, if if done correctly. Uh, right. Like she could really hurt me. I think, and, and that's where the force multiplier comes into play, right? Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. And we and one, I think as time went on, right, we had integrated more force multipliers, which is kind of interesting. So understanding the timeline, right, this three phase protocol was introduced in the end of 2020 right and we and at what during january 2021 was the controversy between china mac and a yale student who i know that katrina will gouge out my eyes if i named this individual and that individual said let's normalize anti-asian i know who she's right? talking about yeah, yeah, yeah know who you're talking katrina, about. katrina's probably like trying to pull out her own hair so i do apologize and and you know around that time could be coincidentally around that time not only did the violence, like we had a weapons specialist uh, join our team, a guy who had trained uh, Filipino martial arts under some of the best, including Conrad Boy and Dan Inosanto, aka one of Bruce Lee's top students. And he had introduced, um, you know, so we basically combined, we like the Dragon Ball Z fusion, like we fused together into one. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, we, we fused ourselves into one. My fiance says that he's my work husband and that we're co-joining the hip. And well, now he's probably like, God damn it, headbutt here. Hears me say this. Uh, but yeah, we, come, we, and we had to do this because the attacks were happening getting progressively violent. And you know this now, right? I, ha I think it's rare for me to see an attack without a weapon nowadays. And so we had been evolving to that. So what kind of force multiplier tools did we begin integrating in our training? The first is a tactical flashlight. What you know, so you have a thumb you press the button on, and the other end is a very heavy striking tip. You shine it in your, their eyes, you might discourage them to leave. You become invisible, like John Cena, which you know, I, I it's a, uh, and also your punches hit harder, and you have basically a striking end. You can it, it's like ha it's like a cloaking device and a rock at the same time, basically. Um, and the second uh device, uh, force multiplier tool that we have is a tactical pen. Um, it's a you you it's it's like a it's a it's a nice stabbing device uh, that you can use to uh, really I guess drive the point home because you know the little sometimes you know those rabbit punches like so, those that aren't that effective where you start, but with a pen with a sharp end suddenly it becomes super effective so that's another force multiplier tool and of course pepper sprays 
you can't get them. You have to go through a lot of loopholes to get them near city. But if you know some people get you out of state, that 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 get that can help you take care of that problem. Uh, so we have those three things. Of course, it's a force multiplier tool, right? So if your force is zero and you have no trading, guess what? You have nothing to multiply by. And typically, when you're out on the street, as you know, you can't just you don't have the weapon in your hand unless you premeditated, right? Unless you suspect shit will happen to draw it, and then you hold it out somewhere. You have to be able to quickly go from hands up into drawing the weapon as you hit them at the same time, pull it back out, and then hit them with it. Or in a pepper spray's case, remove the stage's spray. And that's a skill that you have to develop very fluidly under stress. Yeah, that takes a lot of practice, right? To, to, to ingrain that into your muscle memory. Oh, uh, yeah. Depending on... like. I'll say that, like, I'll, I'm gonna let, I'm gonna say my experience when I see new people do it, and I'm gonna let Katrina uh, kind of give her experience. The first time I see people do it, they'll fumble, they'll drop their weapon, they'll be like, "Oh shit, where is it?" Um, and then you have to multitask, right? Because you're hitting, you're creating that protection or the attack while grabbing at the same time, so it's like a multitasking thing. And then you have to do all these steps. Oh, and then later on, you have to be able to do it on cue, where you keep hitting the person. And then out of nowhere, you have to be able to switch to it on will. And like I said, it's a work in progress. And then you add different layers, footwork, and you know, and then doing in the middle of grappling and etc. So yeah, that's 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 my two cents. Uh, I'll let Katrina uh, talk about her experiences. So I I had a first practice with just basic pens, butter knives. So essentially being like John Wick, <laughs> getting <laughs> using anything as a weapon. Um, and yeah, at first, when, when I first had to try it, I, w- I was fumbling. It fell out of my leggings or I'll just stay in my leggings if it was too thick enough. And this is mm-hmm. during, you know, just it's just during training. It's just from during remote training. It's in a controlled environment. It would have been worse if I literally had to use it against somebody, right? Yeah. Um, God forbid. So um, in, my, in my experience, I'm, I'm kind of grateful I was able to practice drawing out the the force multiplier whether it's a pepper spray flat tack tack flashlight tack pen which at least i own all three now because of what's going on and i nag you well yeah yeah you did kind of nag me to to get the pepper spray at least today (laughs) you know i got the tack pen almost immediately after we just started practicing with it more um but you know, it takes a while even to for me to even normalize, like putting it on my person, you know, especially right. during the summer, like I'm wearing like skirts and shorts and, you know, it's kind of unreality sometimes. Right. And coming to terms about the fact that it has to be on my person, it has to be easily, I have to locate it. If I have to dig around in my purse, in my big bag, just to get it, you're, I'm as good as dead. So... Mm-hmm. Um, just being able to practice drawing it again on cue and then doing this over a series of weeks, it becomes more fluid and also incorporating putting distance, um, moving, you know, mm-hmm. landing hits, trying to distract them. It's, it, it took a while for me again, from my, for me and my body to be able to do it seamlessly Right. Um, but you know, when I first tried to do it, when Henry first um, 
put it in our little curriculum, you know, I was, <laughs> I was very clumsy. <laughs> so uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And it's just also coming up with ways about like how I can really, you know, put it on my person as a, as a woman mm-hmm. in, in different right. scenarios. So men right. have the privilege of um, various privileges. One of them is that we have a lot more pockets. Um, right. <laughs> I hear about that all the time. Yeah. Uh, how, how, so how, two questions. How often did you practice Katrina? How often and for how long? And what was your process? Did you sort of visualize a scenario? Did you, you know, what, how would you go about practicing? So I, when I first joined, I, you know, I was taking classes at home. I was working as well. And I had to keep just logging on, even if it's once, once a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt so it's, I had it, I had to kind of put down all the voices in my head saying that this is not possible for me. I can't get this right. What am I supposed to do? Like I give up and I had to keep going in week after week. It really just, it takes a lot of practice and it takes a lot of, you know, thinking about what am I going to do in this situation? Am I going to run? Am I going to cry? Am I going to freeze? Mm -hmm. And I can tell you, you know, even before training, even, you know, maybe God forbid something happened to me if I freeze, like, and I'm prone to do that, it's game, it's game over. So yeah, again, I was going week after week, I was even going in like multiple times per week as Henry can, oh, can nice. remember. So I was training with him since 2020. It is since Yeah, August 2020. And right now it is February 2022. Okay. Wow. So I've been training with him for a while. And um. I guess I could say I've improved a lot, but I've seen other people come in and they've, their progress just skyrocketed after, after training. So it really is just about knowing what is necessary, just changing your mindset about, you know, what are you going to do in these kinds of situations and just committing to the change. Really it's committing to the change. Um, for those who maybe are not used to going in week after week to practice something, whether it's an instrument or another type of skill, it's all this could be seem very foreign to them. But again, because mm-hmm. of what I do as hobbies with lifting and also, you know, some of my background as mm-hmm. well, I, I know the importance of practice, practice, practice. So yeah. that, that's my experience. Yeah. I found, um, you know, I, I've been training jujitsu for over five years, and it generally, you know, unless you're you already have some kind of background or you're a gifted athlete, mm-hmm. it'll take most people somewhere between uh, three to six months just to yeah. get that muscle memory where they yeah. can pull off a technique in live sparring. You know, they might figure it out in the drills, but yeah. uh, when you're practicing live, is a completely different story. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so- I think coming coming in multiple times a week was a great great decision yeah yeah i think at least you know i'm also a brazilian just practitioner um i've been doing it's all for 10 years i've been a blue belt forever uh, much to the dismay of my (laughs) instructor (laughs) but (laughs) the thing is is that right it's not just pulling off the techniques right 
you have to like when you're in a different each different position you have to know where to place your hands right mm-hmm. you have to know where to place your body weight mm-hmm. you have to be able to mm-hmm. know where to be in every part of your body not to get submitted swept or passed right um, mm-hmm. immediately so you have to have all this base knowledge right before you can even execute the technique and that's very very frustrating um yeah something i found really helpful um as silly as it sounds right like the you know this is a two-part process well it's multiple part process but the two of the parts right is physically executing the techniques with your body Mm -hmm. um but the other part that i have found really helpful uh especially i i do this every time i lose you know something i go to a competition something happens that i wasn't happy with um and you know i just visualize that scenario again and again, and I think about, okay, what was I late on? What did I miss? What yeah. do I do next time? Yeah. And, um, you know, the visualization of it alone, I have found to be helpful. You know, I think um, your mind doesn't necessarily know the difference, right? You still have to train the body, but yeah. if you've got the muscle memory, it helps. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's, it's interesting that you bring a visualization, right? Because uh, I think back in, I guess, what we call the pre the ancient pre-pandemic era of you know 2019 <laughs> and before, um, where like I did some I think with jujitsu and wrestling, right? I feel like if you if you had some training, right? You didn't have back in back before we had to deal with weapons and getting jumped all the time. Um, you know, you were it was practically overkill, right? So most of the visualization I had done was like in like a mat setting, right? In a competition setting. Yeah. And I still do that, of course, now that I've returned to training at Passabellum. Um, martial arts, which is near Union Square, uh, but I'm also having to do this for a visualization when it comes to the very brutal and traumatic footage of seeing these hate crimes, right? Because yeah. these attacks come out of nowhere, so I almost have to analyze it from like a different paradigm. I have to be like, if I were that person, what, how would I have spotted that attack beforehand, right? Was it the facial expression? Was it the way that the person was approaching me, right? Was there a possible weapon indicator I would have noticed? Uh, what would have prevented me from being sucker punched? And luckily, because, you know, John uh, had provided situational awareness training and I've had various other combatants training as well, um, I'm able to at least figure out that pattern and break it down and explain it to other people uh, so that you could not only avoid the surprise attack, but also possibly be in a position where you could actually counter. And those are kind of scenarios that like, I think combat sports training is very helpful for, but is not complete uh, for. So a lot of, so it's like you're visualizing right. through not just, you're visualizing through something that is also very, very traumatic for us. And unfortunately, that's kind of a necessity just so we can kind of prepare ourselves and not mm-hmm. be helpless. Let me let me ask a question to the group because uh, this is something I'm curious about. Because um, I consider myself like you know a pretty liberal progressive guy, like politically. And one of the things that you know a story that I hear a lot, which I'm sympathetic to, is um, when black people say that they feel people like cross the street when they see them or avoid them because they think that a black man is dangerous. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I take that very seriously. Like I, this is something I think about a lot mm-hmm. because that is kind of fucked up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But i noticed that that creates, um, for some people potentially 
this sort of like double consciousness where it's like you see a situation mm-hmm. where maybe you actually do feel like this isn't safe. Yeah. Um, but you don't want to you're, you you don't want to like be that alarmist person and say like, OK, well, I'm not going to cross the street because I know that that's not what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. Or, yeah. you know, I'm in my car like this. Here's a typical example. I'm in my car. And a homeless person is going car to car asking for change, which happens a lot. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I feel a little bit of guilt, but I'm like, I'm locking my door. You know? And I almost feel like I have to untrain myself sometimes to be like, you know, the political uh, express your own political displays here are probably going to be secondary to your safety. But I have to like consciously override it, and I still feel guilty when I lock my doors because a homeless guy is asking for change, you know. And I don't know how you all feel about that, and I'm not even sure that's totally relevant to this particular no. discussion. But I just I no, found it—it it is a weird contradiction. And I've come out to say, look, I don't care. I am going to err on the side of safety, even if it's, you know. Yeah, I think that's the right choice to err on the side of safety. Um, I mean, look, I'm not a small man either, right? Like you're bigger than pe- me. Pe- not, yeah. I don't, either way, right? Like some people are rightfully concerned if if we might cross paths at night. And um, sure, it's frustrating. Uh, you know, maybe I don't experience it to the same degree as a black man, but like the reality is the reality, right? It. It. I, I think maybe something to consider is like. Would does the race of the person matter at all, or is it the scenario, the situation that's causing you to be concerned about your safety? Right? Like, I'm gonna watch anybody passing behind me if I'm standing next to a subway track, for example. It doesn't matter, man, woman, Mm -hmm. how big they are, you know, because a push is still a push, right? Uh, For me, like, I've had to, I've I've given it some reflection as well. Like I said, I am very sympathetic, uh, just because of the connections that I've developed. in life and you know the experience the lived experiences others have told me and i've had to and you know i do i guess the short answer is i do err on a side of safety and that comes from a lot of reflection right because remember that when covid first came and everyone assumed that asians had covid right there were people that walked away there were people that caused coronavirus there were people who coughed at us. There were people who, even though they assumed we had COVID, thought it would be a good idea to run after us and beat the shit out of us. And out of all those responses, right, like they're all obviously some are more objectively more horrific than others. But what is the least harmful and the least horrific one out of them all? A, a person moving out of the way. And I apply that same logic to perhaps another person of color, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a BIPOC individual who may possibly present with red flags in that um, I have had situations where, um, like just last week, I, it was 14th Street, right? And I had a black, I had a black dude, um, you know, he, I was going down the stairs turning and he looked at me, he was really angry and whatnot. And I figured, okay, this, and he, he was also following. So I walked a little faster and he walked faster. And it turned out he turned, right? I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. That's the number one thing, right? I didn't want to just turn around like pepper spray, right? I didn't want to just turn around and take out my pack of the flash and, beat the and, and bash his green up. No. Like, I, I I just, I wanted to move. Oh, I wanted to not harm him, right? I didn't want him to be hurt, you know, for a week. Unless I really had 
had to hurt him. I think that's just the most reasonable response is give them, give them that space, right? If they feel bad, they feel bad. It is very unfortunate. And hopefully, you know, they can talk to someone about it. Uh, yeah. But I want to avoid, I want to be able to avoid that. And give, I want to, I'm like, I want to engage in the least harm that I can uh, to both parties. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so speaking as a, you know, I'm a small, I'm a petite Asian woman. And yeah, I've, I've done all these things, but I'm still, I still have a size disadvantage. And, you know, I look pretty unassuming. So the fear is, you know, somewhat there. Um, however, I'm very sympathetic to the experiences as, as Teen Shang have mentioned based on the friendships that I've made and also the relationships. You know, I don't mm-hmm. want to be that. I don't want to be a Karen, okay, making a scene and <laughs> exactly. walking yeah. away. You don't want to be, nobody wants to be that person. Um, but yeah, I've, look, I'm, I'm very unassuming. You know, I've done, you know, I'm just standing there. And even up until now, I still have seen like one person like just move away. During when I was going back to work, I guess, or even in the beginning stages of the stages of the pandemic, I, yeah, I saw people just move away from me or just some other Asian person just sitting um, in the subway, um, or I've had people just cough on me, and it's very, uh, it's very, it's it's very shitty. It's a very shitty feeling to experience. So I do emph- emphasize, but. I think the context in the situation is, you know, it's very key. Um, and I'm, I'm like Jong and Henry. I do have to, fortunately, I do have to err on the side of safety, regardless of who it is, man or woman, because yeah. especially if they have, if such a, there's a size or height difference, you know, you know, whatever I do, like it could be nothing if like, I have nowhere to just, you know, they push me. So I have to be, you know, very alert and uh, careful about um, like where I stand or what I what I do, um, and I'm I'm speaking as somebody who I'm always giving people the benefit of the doubt. I'm always looking for the good in people. So it's mm-hmm. just it's I guess it's to me it's the opposite from what I'm experiencing. That no, they can't be that bad or something like that. But, you know, it's, it's, it's trained to be completely the opposite. So those are my I, two cents. Yeah, I think Hachina kind of remind me of my experience while I was uh, in China. Mm-hmm. So when I see some, like, group of guys who look like gangster, I still, like, walking away because, yeah. you know, I don't want to be, like, have any interaction with them. So the same thing I would do that with, like, in here. If I don't feel safe, I just walk away. I mean, yeah. 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 That, that's the instinct. That's it. As a woman, especially for someone who actually like live in China for a while and then come to America, I think I just want to be safe. That's it. No, yeah. no matter like you're Chinese or black or white, if I don't yeah. feel safe, I just walk away. Because that's the only like the most effective way to protect myself as a woman. Yeah. Yeah, and I think see that's interesting because you know Shan comes, you know, you came at seventeen from China, and I think that this this comes up a lot. I think which is like uh, Asian immigrants come to America and they're sort of like they're 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 sort of judged for not being like totally up to up to um, 
the latest in terms of like what liberal discourse is around race and like yeah. what's politically correct yeah. and stuff. And they're, they're, they're chastised for it. But what I've noticed is actually like that a lot of, and this goes back to what I was saying originally that because like liberal culture is so, um, it's so, it's so self-conscious and obsessed with the right way for like white people to behave Mm-hmm. in a non-discriminatory way. And I think a lot of Asians are um, basically asked to assume, like to sort of assume that sort of self-consciousness too. Yeah. Um, I found it for me, like I've had to actually sit down and tell myself like, okay, what are my policies? Like just walking around like in New York, like one of the things that I ha- you know, everyone has to deal with is panhandling. Mm-hmm. Like you are always yeah. constantly asked for money. And if I, if K, could you spare this or whatever? And, you know, a lot of times my instinct is like, I want to help this person, you know, yeah. Yeah. but I've over time, um, I have come to the conclusion that it is better for me. It's, it's, it's simpler, safer, and just easier for me to just set a policy to say, I just don't give money to anyone. And that's just how it is. And I, maybe people don't like that, or maybe that doesn't, it's not the best, nicest thing to do. But over time, I have come to the conclusion that it's better for me to have preset policies that I've gone co- comfortable with, like personal yeah. policies. Yeah. And I just follow that. And so there, there might be someone who I just I really feel sympathetic to that day or whatever. But I and, you know, sometimes, you know, they look me in the eye and I, I, I don't try not to ignore people. I will say I'm sorry. Right. And, you know, a lot of times when you, if I just acknowledge that they exist, um, mm-hmm. you know, they there's a, it's diffusing just to say I'm sorry or just yeah. give a little head nod. But Same. I yeah. just I feel like it has been so easy. It's been such a uh, it has made my life a lot easier for me to learn to set a personal policy, if that makes sense. Yeah. Before him. Yeah. yeah. I want to add two things to that, just to add. So uh, before uh, before is that you know with the case that I mentioned on the subway, right? Turns out that my instincts were right, and you know he did. And then once I turned around and I flashed my gear, you know he he stopped and then he moved away. And I think it's also important that we talk about like. You know, I think situational awareness can also diffuse a lot of the racism that I think people that may that people may may sort of uh, possibly display. Why do I say that? Because when you talk to somebody who is sort of afraid of these surprise attacks, right, and they tell you that there's nothing that they can see coming. So if there's nothing they can see coming, and you look at how the media portrays these attacks. What do you think people will naturally be afraid of? They'll be afraid of black people, right? Because we we understand that you know the, the discourse either gaslights you or kind of amplifies those attacks. But however, by showing people what the indicators of danger are, right? Whether it's the presence of a weapon, certain facial expressions, certain mannerisms, you know which individuals are dangerous in regards to their race. And furthermore, you in New York City, you can't stay within a reactionary gap area one. Things are crowded. You have to be able to blend into the crowd. You have to be able to blend into the crowd with the right people. That means that you actually have to know which individuals are safe to go near. So if you see a black couple, right, or a black woman with her kid, well, I and you think that they're dangerous, well, guess what? You deserve to die from your own racism. Right. Yeah, they're being you a parent. Exercise, you should be able to exercise, right? Good judgment and to mm-hmm. know 
to, you know, okay, those are very safe individuals, but right? Or a guy that's a black dude that's on his phone, you know, just playing his game. Yeah. Right? Minding his own business. Very safe to blend into, right? And you should be able to know that or even look at them, not be like, hey, what's up, you know, and, and just acknowledge them as human beings. And, yeah. and that's the thing about what Katrina said, right? Being able to see the positive in people is also necessary um, for for our own survival as well. And I forgot what my second part was. Yeah, and mental health too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and I think for for me, it is it is helpful to constantly be thinking about this. And like I said, I mean, for me, um, to to you know how you're saying like to practice in terms of getting your body movements and body control and all that stuff sort of like sorted out before you need to rely on it. Yeah. Um, I think the in terms of social awareness, like situational awareness, I think a huge part of it is social awareness, especially in a big complex city like New York City. Yeah. Um, that we do go over our day and our experiences and sort of process it and say like, you know, what situations simply make me feel uncomfortable and which ones mm-hmm. should I worry about, you and know, and, and, be, and, and sort of set that as a, set that, set that sort of beforehand mm-hmm. so that when you're going out and I, and this was like the hard part, like in, you know, many, many, several decades ago when I moved to New York city, um, you know, the city is very overwhelming in, in many ways. And um, just going out and trying to process what was actually going on. I mean, it's, it, it takes work and effort. But I think now more than ever, I think it is important to be like, look, I I can't just take my cues from the New York Times and, you know, and like these, you know, and these like neurotic white people in terms of like what they think is, is appropriate and politically correct. Like I have to um, I have to impose my own views and judgments on the world around me, you know. Yeah. Um, I, and I think that that was the second point that I wanted to bring up is sort of this idea that that people who are very wealthy, people who live in ivory towers, impose their their view on us. And, correct. you know, if you were objectively saying, okay, if they were flat out saying that this is an oligarchy, I'm like, okay, you know, at least I know what they expect, right? But yeah. no, they say that, no, we're culturally diverse. We're culturally responsive, right? And I'm like, well, if that's the case, why the fuck do you not know what is like to live in New York City. Why do you tell us what to yeah. be angry about? Why the fuck mm-hmm. do you tell mm-hmm. us what to prioritize? Why do you tell us to prioritize your comforts over our survival? Right? And there's just this very blatant hypocrisy in that. And there's also this idea of what they define as anti-blackness. And I've had to unlearn that over yeah. the course of uh, being of being the head of DCC and essentially becoming what well, would you know becoming sort of the inadvertent advocate you know for uh, you know API folks who live in urban areas uh, such as New York City in that who defines what anti-blackness is? I've learned that you know it is not black people, at least not black people in New York City. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I think it is a. I think it is sort of this blue check culture, this sort of like um, media and academic elite that have made it their living to talk about this at a social and abstract level. That 
if we try to inher- in- inherit those ideas and act on those ideas and behave according to those ideas, we'll go crazy. You know, and I think that's that this um, <laughs> Katrina says, you know, I don't want to be the Karen. Yeah. And <laughs> no one wants to be the Karen. But, you know, going around and constantly saying, like, is that a Karen thing to do? Is it, Am I being a Karen is also not, <laughs> you know, you're probably not in the safest position if you're going around the city all day, you know, uh, in this endless loop of wondering if you're a Karen, you know. Yeah. And um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I from my this is getting a little bit away from um, the topic of, you know, combat readiness and, and, mm-hmm. and self-defense. Yeah. But I think there's a huge mental aspect to this, which is like, and this is what gets me really angry, uh, is every time there's an attack that, again, sort of corroborates or verifies this idea that Asian people, especially in, in New York City and, you know, in, in Northern California and places like that, a Bay Area, are being victimized and targeted that mm-hmm. when, while that's happening and we have stats to back that up, et cetera. Yeah. At that very moment is also the time when we are being accused the most of being racist. Right. Yeah. And I just find that intolerable. I don't like from a macro, like just sort of like zoom out. I'm like, why are we being interrogated for racism when the whole basis of even talking about this is because we're being targeted you know and i don't care by whom honestly here's the thing i don't give a crap about the race of the attackers in any of these things and i am actually kind of sad and disappointed when um when it's you know another person of color who's Mm -hmm. attacking an asian person um but i but i don't really at this point give it much second thought i'm like you just got to be careful about everyone you know (laughs) it just has to stop yeah, it just has yeah, to stop. And stop. also you can't you 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 if you know, like yeah, we all profile. Like we all profile in our head. And I think if you're only racially profiling, like, oh, only black men can be dangerous, I think that's also a very dangerous way of thinking. Oh, definitely. You know? Um, but we do profile, right? And I I guess I guess I'm advocating that people get comfortable with their sense of what's dangerous and think think it through and commit to it and if you don't think that that would be acceptable to you know the new york times uh audience or the new yorker readers you know of the world uh fuck them i don't care i mean you know or like as chong said before uh you know fuck it i'm safe you know yeah especially for women if they consider as a karen so fine i'm a karen for my own safety that's it (laughs) yeah I want to say that, so, yeah, and I think it's it's one of those things that's hard to unlearn uh, than what people realize, right? Because this isn't like some DSA Karen, you know, on Twitter who has no bearing on whether you, you know, on your personal life, right? This this sort of mentality that we've had to unlearn comes from other Asian Americans. Once again, not just people on Twitter who, uh, who you want to like just punch over the internet or like <laughs> sodomize over the internet of a durian. No. These are people that we know. Mm-hmm. I grew up with somebody like that. I knew that per from literally from like from like when I was a child, right? And and you know, I this person that I knew that was a kid that I that I trusted, right? Was you know they prided themselves in being an activist. They yeah. prided themselves in being educators. So when we were getting fucked up by everyone, I'm like, maybe this person can help me. 
you know, kind of like a police officer who is a badge. And therefore, you're like, hey, if I'm getting fucked up, of course, you know, a dying person, hey, I'm getting fucked up. Maybe this person can do something about it, right? And then they're like, no, Henry, you need to work on your goddamn anti-blackness. I'm like, and your privilege. And by that time, I had already completed my master's school psychology. I've already done sort of unpacking. I've already analyzed. Look, I know that, you know, that if it's talked about in the wrong way, that it's going to screw over black people, right? But if we yeah. don't talk about this at all, it's going to screw over Asian people and black people under the guise of quote-unquote Asian racism. Like, no, 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 Henry. Here are these articles that you need to read to help you do better. And I'm just like, motherfucker, you might as well have told me to restart my computer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like, um, you know, that's effectively kind of the like the zero tolerance absolutely never use violence type of approach right yeah oh it was before the violence approach i was just like let's have a conversation about the nuances of the this is before i went violent problems require violent solutions right this was when i before dragon combat when i believed hey let's have a talk about how you know both communities have caused harm let's figure out how to you know come together let's about community what about understanding that you know, harm is harm, even if you have been marginalized yourself, right? That it's not that wrong is wrong. And they just like, they're just like, oh, you need to read these articles instead. You know, yeah. About- some people do not give a fuck. They don't want to yeah. talk. So I had my revenge six months later, which I don't think they realized. In that, so I, of course, I was like, well, this person decided to grandstand lecture me. I saw my fiance. I, I saw what happened to all these people. You know, and I started to, and so I'm like, yeah, all right, fuck this. I'm gonna. Go violent problems require violent solutions and whatnot. Um, so I, I go, I'm going to my grad school six, like for six months, right? And every day I'm go, I'm running this class because this is the only method people are going to live, right? I saw no, yeah. I figured, how else am I going to deal with racism if nobody is going to talk about solutions? Okay, one guy talked about solutions, right? Um, um, there was Justin Troy, teaches Muay Thai in downtown, downtown Manhattan. You're in Chinatown, I think two bridges, right? But people just ignored him in, in the yeah. chat groups. They were just like, you need to work on your anti-blast. Like, oh, ha BLM, who cares about them? And, you know, mm-hmm. and like, so we were, the people with solutions were just getting muted and shut down. Right. So I'm just, so every day I'm just like training people and then going to class, pretending that this wasn't happening, pretending that people who could be my family weren't getting fucked up all this time and, you know, going to school and seeing all these like workshops that did about racism that weren't about us. And one day a schoolmate of mine, uh, you know, she was actually, she did a presentation for black lives, uh, for a school, you know, I listen, you know, I, I really admire her courage and whatnot. She found out what I did. Like uh-huh. she found out. And I, I was just like, nah, that's, that's life. You know, that's just how it is. And she's like, no, Henry, this is, this is horrible. Like you shouldn't have to live this life in like a society that, is silent about what you have to go through is unacceptable. And I mean, she made me realize that just like by her shock and by her reaction. And I was like, and I was just like, it kind of blew my mind because I'm like, this was, I was told by a Chinese American woman, right? Mm-hmm. What was mm-hmm. anti-black, right? To, to just you know, keep my mouth shut, to keep my head down, to just that it was okay for me to have to train people how to fight and how to stab people and fucking pe- impale people a pen just so they could live, right? Yeah. And here, here comes a schoolmate of mine, a black woman, who has dealt with her former racism, right? Which is, you know, you know, objectively brutal in many ways that we can't really 
of that. And also, she's also Muslim, so she's dealt with that shit. And yeah. instead of playing Oppression yeah. Olympics with me, right, she actually has a fucking heart and shows me the light. And I'm like, wow. Like, it, it was just, and that was what led me to speak out at my school. You know, and people were like, "No, Henry, don't you shouldn't say that out loud." You know, right. people are going to say you're anti-black, and it turns out who were my biggest supporters at the school, the black students. They were the ones that were telling, you know, giving me, you know, the biggest support, and you know, uh, giving me the most help, and the most sympathetic. And I'm like, "Wow, that just flipped." It, it, it just, I don't know. It's like at that moment, I realized, "Wow, my life, a big part of it, has been a lie." Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I, that- Oh, sorry. Go ahead, John. Uh, that's. I mean, that's great that um, you know she gave you that support and that she kind of affirmed that what you're doing is the right thing. Um, Teen, I don't know if what you wanted to say, but um, you know, I wanted to touch on how that's kind of like a demonstration of the paradox of violence. Okay. Um, so, Hen, you, you're familiar with this, right? That that the possibility of um, of violence can can actually prevent violence right like a lot of times yeah like (laughs) a lot of times you know when there's like street fights or altercations or whatever when do you get sucker punched it's when you know one of your friends is like oh dude it's not worth it let's just walk away right or um or even worse somebody comes in and like holds you trying to stop you from getting into a fight and that's when you get that's when you get attacked it's like Um, turning the other cheek Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there's also the idea that the more that the willingness to the sheer willingness to inflict violence has prevent will prevent it, and that has happened multiple times. Like I, that has happened many times in 2021, and even more so in 2022. Um, two days after the Atlanta massacre, I was do I was leaving my neuropsych externship on the Upper East Side. And there was, and it wasn't that cold, right? It wasn't a rainy day. I was, and I saw this guy approaching me from five o'clock, right? With his right hand in his right pocket. And I'm just like, why the fuck are your hands in your pocket? It's not that fucking cold. And he just looked, he, and he's approaching me. Um, so I turn, so I basically turn around. And the thing is, my mom's about to pick me up. So I can't run, right? I'm thinking if I run away, he might just attack someone else, right? So I quickly turn around and I reach for my and I reach for my clip, and I'm just looking at him in, my, in the eyes. I'm like, Rich, I can stab you too. I didn't say that loud, but I said it in my face. And then he just turned around and walked away. And a lot of people might like, sort of think it's a kind of some kind of ultraviolet cycle, especially with my violent problems require violent solutions. But guess what? Nobody got hurt that day because I was willing to stab a motherfucker, right? That, mm-hmm. that, that's, that's the ultimate paradox. And that happened, you know, um, around Elmhurst too. Same scenario. My grandma was picking out fruits, um, you know, in this U.S. supermarket in Elmhurst, outside the station, two other elderly, minding their own business. And you see this guy who's very disheveled, right? He's very angry. He has a book bag in front of him, right? Huge red flag because if he has a giant hammer, he can reach in and grab and bash you, which has happened to Asians on the subway before. Yeah. Um, and then, but the thing that really alarmed me was this giant wooden handle sticking out of his right pocket. And I'm just like, maybe that's a comb, right? And then I look at the imprint in his pants, uh, the pocket, not not the middle of his pants, but the, the side. Just, just to be clear. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying, yeah. <laughs> yeah, super. I have a history of horrible phrasing. And I'm like, fuck. It's not that he's happy to see me. It's that he has a fucking knife. 
And he's approaching, and he's already within the reactionary gap. What is the reactionary gap? Two armlets, right? That's the distance in which you can run or that you can react to surprise. I'm like, fuck. But at least I'm paying attention to him, right? And then I'm like, fuck. Like, even if I know how to defend a knife, I'm going to get cut up, right? Yeah. What am I going to do? I quickly reach for the clip of my tactical open. I look him dead in the eye, and I give him that, like, I guess – what my fiance calls the psycho stare. I don't know. She thinks she thinks I'm crazy when I do that, but I I don't think so. I think that I've normal. I guess I normalized it, right? And then he looks at me. He's like, and then he just looks away, and then he walks away. I'm like, um, but yeah. And it, it's interesting that every time I've threatened to bash somebody's head attack, like every time I've threatened the pepper spray, uh, draw my pepper spray, which I have drawn my pepper spray on somebody before. Every time I'm about to refer a pen. Their facial expression changes from like angry to quote unquote calm. I'm like, oh, so that's what it took for you to calm down, huh? Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't therapy. It was. It was you coming to your senses and seeing a piece of metal about to go into you. That's yeah. what made you come to your senses. Them realizing there would be consequences. I mean, I think this this concept of the paradox of violence is probably one reason why Asian women are targeted. I think there is an assumption that Asian women are passive and don't fight back and they're easy yeah. targets, you know? So, you know, I, I, I think that if you think about it, it's, it's not even a paradox. I think it, it's actually quite intuitive mm -hmm. because I think people are looking for easy targets, Yeah, you know, and, and the second the target proves itself to be uh, pro kind of problematic, you move <laughs> on. I mean, there's yeah. like little animals that don't get, preyed upon because they have little quills you know right. it's just like a little bit of a problem and you're like all right fuck it, it's not yeah. worth it i mean you know? it's yeah. it's bullying behavior right that's what bullies do they look yeah. for the easy target and if that target never fights back they just keep picking on that target again and again but the day that that target fights back and makes life hard or painful for the bullies they move on yeah from from the you know the the angle that i've been really interested in is is has all been been about mindset because I think that Asian people in America are so a lot of us anyway are um are taught to be a little bit passive and um a little bit oblivious and I and, and I was listening to this podcast the other day um an Asian American one that follows politics time to say goodbye and it's like three sort of you know white adjacent liberals one of them literally writes for the New York Times and you know this, this kind of people and um you know, the first thing they said was like, I'm just really sad. They were talking about um, Michelle Goh and Christina Yuna Lee. And the first thing they said was, you know, all three of them were like, I'm just sad and I don't know what to do. And I, I feel like the bubble of safety has been burst oh and God. it's not the city that I know anymore. And mm -hmm. I'm like, the city that you know, it's never been safe. Like, yeah. New York City has never been some paradise of safety or, or paragon of personal safety. Like, as far as, and for me, I've always been like, you got to watch your back in New York City. What are you talking about? And, uh, and so I, I, I gathered that um, recent events, I mean, it's really shattered a lot of their perceptions mm -hmm. uh, that I think were always delusions. Yeah. And so they don't know what to do. Um, you also, know, this is like brand yeah, new to I, them. And where the fuck so, were you the last two years? That's why I want to ask. Yeah. Like where? Well, well, I mean, here's yeah. the thing. I mean, one of the hosts of this pod, I mean, you know, and I, I was loudly, I was trying to get people to, you know, I was trying to get people on Twitter to see this, but like in one of the, in one of the very early, um, during the, like in the 2020s, uh, 2020, when the attacks really started to ramp up, 
um, you know, they were talking about this and one of the hosts said, you know, I don't, I know this is probably insensitive and I'm sure this stuff is happening, but I don't know if this is necessarily the biggest deal right now. And then this super neurotic stuff about how, you know, Asian Americans are going to use this to, you know, uh, as an excuse to X or Y or whatever. And, and this is the, this is the thing is like, and Shan said, Shan and, and uh, Chong had said this on the last pod. I think this was the big, takeaway for me Mm -hmm. was you at bottom level is your personal safety and that is an absolute entitlement and i personally i don't even think it's an entitlement i think it's an obligation i think it's your job to prioritize your safety it's not i have the right to defend myself you have the obligation to defend yourself you gotta make it home that's that's an affirmative response that is the ultimate responsibility that you have to the universe to life right is to make Mm -hmm. it home Mm -hmm. and so um, to have lost that sense of obligation or entitlement, however you want to frame it, into this sort of never-ending sense of like, I don't know, like, am I? It, it, do I have the right to do this? Am I being racist? Am I being uh, classist? Am I, you know, like, who cares? I mean, you've <laughs> this is your bottom level. Nothing should get under that. Um, and I think it does for me. I think seeing this as a fairly common reaction among Asian Americans for me, I'm like, you know, you've got to train yourself to see that there is a sort of hierarchy a set of priorities in life. And if you're not honoring that fundamental priority of making it home alive, then you're very confused and you've got to sort it out. Well, yeah. If you don't understand that hierarchy, guess what that's called? That's called white supremacy. Right. And I, I'm sorry, you know, everyone, you know, people love mm. to sort of. Wait, uh, Clara, I, that's interesting. But can you unpack that a little bit? Absolutely. I love mm-hmm. to. You know, you talk <laughs> about Asian Americans, right? Where, like, you know, not being vocal, not being fight back, right? You can absolutely attribute that to white supremacy. How so? Look at the kind of people who are blue chips. Look at the kind of people who get hurt or, as Asian Americans with the big platforms. Who do they promote? What does the where does the money promote? The people who are like, I'm sad, but I don't know what to do. Does anyone yeah. know a service where Asian yeah. Americans go back? Or <laughs> oh my God, Asian Americans can't think of any other carceral solutions. Or like, oh, I'm so sad, but this, but this, or this happens to women. And it's never Asian. They, they, they never they make it anything about racism. Where are the angry people? Where are people like Katrina? <laughs> where are why are people not like, the, the funny that's, i think like, i mean that's the majority of our of the asian american community but you don't hear yeah. you don't hear from them where, yeah. where i mean this is the silent majority and i think this is an event where the silent majority is starting to speak up yeah. yeah, I think most people, uh, they just don't want to go to like Twitter and listen to all the bullshit because they don't really understand this. Why would that have to do with anti-black? When did my lie have like anything to do with anti-black? Also, you know, I know a lot of my also, friends, they don't go to listen to this kind of bullshit. So that's why they become the majority, a uh, silent majority. Because they want to live. You're not, you don't go to life, you don't go through life saying, hey, I want to be a Twitter, I want to be a Twitter platform. No, you want to go to your job. You want to help people through your job, right? And make it, well, at least for us, right? We're in the helping professional. Katrina's, uh, you know, in the, in the dental office. I'm in the, uh, I'm in psychology. My fiance is in speech language pathology, right? 
And guess what? We want to go through it. We want to help people and go back, right? And that's the majority yeah. of the people, right? And you know, even after like when Michelle Go was was pushed, and we heard all the all the bullshit, you know, that gets elevated once again through white supremacy. What makes white people come for, right? And you know what the reaction it took. And that was the turning point where my fiance started to pack the flashlight, the pen, and also the pepper spray all together. She used to think it was extreme. Mind you, she hits very hard for her size just because, you know, we train. Uh, she doesn't train that much, but, you know, she has talent. And, and also, and, you know, and she could draw up. She carries all three. And her reaction was, I am fucking sick and tired of people thinking that we are easy targets all the time. Right. I have never yeah. heard any blue check. On, or any Asian American on media say that. And I know she is not the only person who thinks that way. Yeah. I think one, one of the reasons that the Twitter is like full of bullshit because the blue chat people, they got paid to do it and they doing like a full-time basis and we are just like regular working yeah. people. So it's kind of like, you know, we're doing like <laughs> not even part-time. We have to do it like outside of like our like normal work life. Yeah, yeah like nobody's got I, time for that. I look, listen, I, I, I can't be on my phone all the time. I can't be on the computer. I, I am on the computer all the time, but I'm doing other things on top of my job. Like, I don't have time to deal with the bullshit of Twitter that is populated by people who, in my honest opinion, also, they tend to populate a certain, like, sort of class or other different areas of New York City where they feel like they don't even have to deal with we have to deal with and that's also very frustrating i mean i just i just had somebody ask me as like a sample size for all asians what do you think about subway safety and when i told her what i felt she just kept interjecting but that's not the new york city i know that's mm-hmm. no way like you two live in flushing and i got very i got very uncomfortable and it just happened during my work and i just I I just have <laughs> I had no word other I had no other words to say. I mean, you know, you know, unfortunately the reality is is here. It's in front of us. It's in the news. Yeah. I'm just like if that's not the New York City I know, yeah. where the fuck do you go? Where do yeah. you live? Do you work from home and not exit it? Do you know how normalized these attacks are? And not I'm not talking about like, oh, uh, Mayor Adams is going to do something about all these attacks that are on uh, on the subway that made it to the news, right? Like, we we all know somebody, and Katrina confirms, we all know somebody from our club who has stopped the attack, right? Um, yeah. I think, all right, um, stop the attack. We know people who are supposed to join our club, just got strapped with these new tools, and are like, oh, fuck, I need to step in right now. <laughs> and really, almost so immediately. Kind of, they stepped in, like, they stopped uh, like an attack, actual attack yeah. that was in process. Yes, yeah, wow. sexual harassment uh, twice in one week. Once on Friday at Grand Central, uh, not not today, but last week, and then once on Saturday uh, when we were volunteering for Sore Over Hate Good at shit. Christina Unilee's memorial. Yeah, that's and that's then, a, that's making a difference right there. Immediate. Yeah, yeah, and then also. Um, even today, I didn't know about. I wouldn't have been able to tell you this podcast, right? So I was going to the jujitsu practice in the Pasabellum, and I was, I was just looking. I was like, I was like, yo, um, I, I was just looking at my training partner who who walks in because I gave him like a tack pen for himself. I gave him a bunch mm-hmm. of tack flashlights and pepper sprays for himself and his uh, sister, who I found out today had been stalked. Oh, but wow. that's not even a thing that I found out, right? I 
I was like, I looked at his pen. He's clipping it properly. I'm just like pointing at my smile. And I'm like, yeah, was, yeah, that's what's up. And I was like, I was like, you know, and I was just expecting him to laugh and we would just go and sit on the mat, slap hands and roll. Now he tells me that he was about to get into a fight the day before where there was a guy that was angry and he was about to punch a shadow of a woman. And then he escorted her, you know, out of the car, mm-hmm. uh, you know, out of the car, you know, one of the five yeah. Ds, you know, and to distract <laughs> and whatnot after yeah. working. And, and luckily nothing happened to her. And of course, there's a risk involved, right? He could have ended up punching him instead. But luckily, you know, he did jujitsu and we strapped him up. And, right. You know, that's that's new, that's the New York. that It's not just the New York that I think it is. It's the New York that people like I, Katrina, and our training partners, Asian or not, have to live through. Yeah. So here's this, um, you know, something that comes up often is especially in the cases where it's like just like a random attack in broad daylight. Um, I don't you know, at least in San Francisco, there was an incident just a couple blocks away from me where this um, with this like middle aged woman was just like completely sucker punch. You know, she had no idea it was coming. She collapsed onto the ground and there was a lot of criticism directed at these two men who were eating lunch, uh, like not even five feet away from her. Um, and they just watched. They didn't, they, you know, they didn't. Wasn't that in New York, Chinatown? In no, Manhattan, th- Chinatown? No, no, this wasn't in Chinatown. I mean, that it- may have happened oh. also in Chinatown. Okay, because that um, sounds exactly like something that happened in, in Manhattan, Chinatown. No, this was where- definitely in San Francisco. I know exactly okay. where it happened. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. And there was a, a big conversation around it, around it, right? Like a lot of people were like, oh, you know, those are those are two young men. They should have hopped in and helped protect the woman. And then other people were like, yo, this this dude is clearly violent. Why should they be risking their own safety? Right. And uh, what, what are your thoughts on whether or not somebody should intervene uh, and when? Uh, yeah, I think we have to understand, like, uh, you know, I do, you do want to, um, uh, you know, consider your safety should always be consideration. How much you consider it depends on you. Right. And, for me, I feel like by default, I would just because I have these capabilities, right? I have trained MMA for 10 years plus other weapons-based stuff. Um, yeah. And I have all these tools at my disposal. So therefore, I am able to do so. It's almost like if I don't, how am I going to look myself in the mirror? Unless the guy has like two automatic weapons or something, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and at the same time, you know, like if I didn't have something, right, you could distract, right? You could, right. Uh, you could yeah. delegate, right? I mean, I don't want to be that person. You don't want to have like 10 people like having like 10 different uh, camera angles for someone's personal stuff though. That's, that's not helpful at all. Like no. you want to do what you, what, uh, to your capability, uh, to help. That being said, given how normalized violence is, right? Given how normalized anti-Asian racism is, and I can say that without anyone whining at me anymore, uh, but, uh, give, right? it is our obligation as a community to prepare our fellow, you know, brother, sister, sibling for violence, right? Yeah. To become that violent solution to that violent problem, right? Whether it's encouraging them to go to MMA gym, giving them those tools, explaining how Katrina has explained so well that you can't just pick it, just pick up a pepper spray and boom, you can use it. No, that there are all these things that you have to consider, all these skills you have to execute just to draw it, right? And integrate that with striking and grappling. 
It's mm-hmm. like, wow, all that just for a simple like <laughs> crust of a bun? Yep, that has to be common knowledge, right? And we have to elevate ourselves as a community. And that's going to take time. That's going to take work to build that foundation, right? right? So that we can avoid situations where we're like, oh, there's nothing he could have done. Or, or like just say, oh, he should have done something without the consideration of all those things you have to do to be able to stop violence. Yeah, I think just stepping up and mm-hmm. making your presence known, um, maybe even getting other people involved, you know, it's like one of the, it's, it's about momentum, right? Like one person sees that they're not going to be the only person to jump in. And often a lot, a lot of people will follow. Yeah. 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 Again, I think, um, I guess we're, we're kind of running a little bit out of short on time, but uh, <laughs> this has been a really great conversation. Cause like, like, you know, I've just been feeling personally like uh, very, not helpless, but like paralyzed by what you could do. And, and, and I, you know, like, 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 like I told you, I was listening to these people talk about this and, and their feeling was just despondent and they were, they were like, I'm just sad. And I, you know, it feels like this is just, this could happen to anyone. And I just, all I can do is pray that it's not me. And I'm like, no, there is something you can do. Yeah. yeah there's gotta be something. There's always something you can do. Right. And it's, it's I done. think that you we have to <laughs> take on this sort of more proactive attitude that you all have taken. And I'm really uh, happy that you guys founded, you know, are doing this. And I think it's a huge service to people. Um, how do they get involved? How do people get, find you guys? Um, are, are there any other groups that you want to talk about uh, or, and, yes. you know, where should people go? Okay. So for us, right. Our Instagram is dragon combat club. I assume that, uh, uh, Teen is gonna basically. Oh, we'll yeah, you're gonna give me the links, and I'll put yeah. them in the show notes, so you can find them in the show notes. But yeah, just tell them what what social media you're on. Yeah, and, and uh, like the that. link tree has a bunch of links, including our uh, our sign up link, our Venmo donation link for Tackle Gear. Um, and I, I always say that you know you have all these big organizations that like I'm like we're gonna like fight anti Asian racism, and they either tell you the shit that you already know, or like they repeat the same damn talking points. Like, okay, all right. Um, what now, right? This, uh, these tools will go directly to people to literally stop Asian hate, right? A concrete solution to a concrete problem. That's going to be on there. The infographics are going to be on there um, as well. So that's Dragon Combat Club. And what we do is that we provide remote self-defense training for free, three to four days a week. All right. So and that's, you know, zero bullshit. All the fat is cut out of it. Yeah. Uh, we have occasionally we have occasional um, in person uh, events, and also we actually help out with in person missions from other organizations, and we'll also refer you to very good MMA schools in your state, which you do have to pay for, but at least we'll give you send you to places where you know that we've trained that we can bet. Finally, other organizations that I are also zero bullshit; they can't bring us all TCBUA. They do some. They do many wonderful things. Um, they have a sub organization called Brave, B R A V three, which is yeah. that's yeah, that's how it's uh, <laughs> stylized, right? Um, and they do in person self defense programs. They actually took a lot of ideas from DCC, which I'm glad. I'm, very, I'm, very, I'm glad they did, and they're bringing it to the people. And we actually help out with their in person events. They also do subway support missions, where they'll go to the subway 
and they'll hand out flyers to these elderly. Yeah. They'll, they'll help the elderly up and down the stairs with these heavy groceries, right? And that's also where they're most likely to be attacked. Yeah, they're, they're doing pro- it tomorrow, actually. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, and we're sending some afternoon. folks there. Yeah, so our team will basically, like, we'll send a few folks to DCC. We'll strap them all with tactical flashlights, a lot of other gear, introduce them to us. Uh, because that's a dangerous shot, too. And that, that they have had to de-escalate stuff. Uh, one of our buddies has had to threaten somebody with a tool just to just to get the person to stop attacking a volunteer. Uh, so they're oh. risking their lives to go to go to travel there to support there and to go home uh, for free. So uh, TCB. So uh, so that's uh, their Instagram is TCBUA. Uh, finally, soar over hate. Mm-hmm. They actually, you know what's funny. Um, Every time that we get fucked up, Asian Americans get fucked up, we get murdered. Mm-hmm. What do people who checks out about? Mental health of the attacker. Who gives a shit about the mental health of us, the survivors? Sort yeah. over hate does. Yeah. They actually yeah. have a fund to provide mental therapy health. services to victims of violence or also family members of violence. As you know, Queen Ma was 10 blocks away from where we, uh, where we were. The rally was very close to us, right? And guess what? The hus, you know, the husband is clearly very, uh, very traumatized. And sort over hate has provided uh, yeah. that iPad to a uh, Ma's family. A lot of direct work. And also, they also uh, passed out safety devices, alarms, which you know I have mixed feelings about, but at least you know, yeah. it's better to pontificate. And also, more importantly, pepper sprays. That's yeah. the good part. And so um, they, they go around passing it out. So these are folks. Who are very aren't interested in clout. They are very interested yeah. in the survival and the uh, proliferation of our community. Yeah. So please and, support those two organizations. And I just wanted to add that it is it was founded by a med student. So she is training to be a healthcare professional. And some people in the ranks, they're also training to be healthcare professionals too. So honestly, like they put in they pour in so much time to help out with the community and you know, I'm I'm glad they're out there. You know, um, so I I kind of salute to them. Yeah, they're as as a fellow healthcare professional. Yeah, and I don't know if you notice a trend, right? Almost like with these folks, these blue trends, they're always entertainers or politicians, right? But the people on the ground, what are they during the daytime? They're psychologists. They're speech language pathologists, right? They're in the, they're in the dental office, right? They're they're doctors. Or like there's there's so many engineers too, in at DCC. So it, these are people who are interested, you know, who have grown up in a city of very diverse individuals. They understand why anti-blackness is an issue and why that has to be, you know, addressed. And they also understand their own survival. And they also understand that this isn't something that you talk about to sound great, but it is a problem to be solved. And I think that's the common thread that these grassroots organizations have in common. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Gr- really great having you all on because um, it's just great to talk about what can be done and what is being done. I think most importantly is what is being done. So we don't all have to reinvent the wheel. There are people out there doing a lot of great work like you all and um, everyone that you just mentioned. So, um, you know, it just feels there's no need to feel hopeless. There's no f- need to feel despondent. Um, you know, I think it's I think just people are mobilized. People are. Yeah. Are, are doing the work so yeah. it's great to hear it's great to hear that story yeah so um, yeah thanks all thanks everyone um and yeah check the show notes for all those links um and much appreciated and i and um you know uh, i'm pretty sure we're gonna 
we'll be doing some yeah. more of the because really fun to do it because like <laughs> after I work at home I gain a lot of weight so I can see that as a great way to do my exercises while at yeah. the same time I can like mentally prepare something you know so make me feel stronger more yeah. powerful and you have a training partner right there with you too yeah. Oh yes. I call him my dummy. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's me. All right. Great. So thanks everyone. Thank you. Thank you so thanks much. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Thank you.